Our first scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 1 and can be found on page 1078 in your Red Pew Bibles. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met again, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who, was being, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 6. This is on page 1187. So chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Father, we hear your word. Open our ears. Open our hearts so that we might hear your living voice. Speak, Lord. Your children are listening. Amen. Well, last week, the uh, Toronto Marathon came by our front doors here. Well, actually, our side doors over there. Uh, as the runners, 26,000 runners, raced along Harvard and throughout the, the, tra- the, the whole race uh, area. You know, there was a 5K race, there was a 10K, there was a half marathon or full marathon. How each runner ran their race was entirely dependent upon where their finish line was. Every race you run, it is dependent upon your finish line. It determines the type of race you run. If it's a 100-meter dash, you are going on a full-out sprint, but you cannot sustain that pace over 42 kilometers of a marathon because the finish line determines the type of race you run. Equally so in our lives. Whatever finish line, whatever end point we believe about our life, about this world, that 
shapes and determines the life we live. That shapes our today. So an important question for us to imagine and ask is what future do you see? What's the finish line of this life, of this world? What's the end point that you hold as true? Because that is going to determine the type of life you live today, this week. We have been looking at the uh, Apostles' Creed for the past couple of weeks. The Apostles' Creed, if you're new here, if you're not sure, is this ancient summation, sort of a shorthand summary of what the Christian faith is all about, the essentials, the core convictions. And uh, in the Apostles' Creed, it articulates what Christians across space and time believe about who God is. Remember, it's split up into three sections, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and about what God has done. And we saw last week, we're in the middle of the section on Jesus Christ, this middle section, which is the largest, and we saw last week how so many of the tenses of the verbs are past tense, because they're describing something that has happened in history that Jesus has done for us. And this middle section now makes a transition from past towards future. And it begins to get us focused on what is that future that shapes our present living. So the section we're going to be looking at today is how Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it begins, again, by looking at the past, focused on what has happened in history in Jesus. Jesus not only suffered, was crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell, but on the third day he rose again and he ascended to heaven. Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. Jesus stared down. He defeated death in his resurrection to new life. And this was something historic. It was witnessed by all sorts of people who saw the living Jesus, who touched him, who hugged him, who ate with him. And beyond those immediate range of disciples, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 makes this long list of people who have seen the risen Christ, individuals, groups, small groups, large groups. And then he notes this, he says most of them are still living. Obviously at that time, Almost as if to say, if you don't believe it, go check. There there are people who have seen this. The resurrection was this event in history, and yet it points us to the future because it is one of the first fruits of the future that God is accomplishing for us. It is a first sign of what is to come. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit later on, the resurrection of the body and what that means for us. I mean, just a little thing. Think of think of a body that fully functions and works. I feel creaky knees already in my 50s and I'm looking forward to climbing mountains in heaven with no bad knees. That's gonna be a good thing. The resurrection is the first fruits of what God is gonna accomplish fully. But then there's one more act in history of Jesus, his sort of final act in history of his earthly ministries and that is his ascension to heaven. And that tells us more of of the good future that we are headed to. And in Acts chapter 1, we heard that story of Jesus' ascension to heaven read to us, of Jesus being taken up into heaven. Now in our church, 
We don't need just the story read. Every Sunday, if you come to church, you see it. It's right there. We got this great, brilliant panel of stained glass that depicts for us the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. Now, when you think of ascension, I can imagine all sorts of questions come to mind, right? I think probably the most significant question probably isn't related to the how did this happen. I think the more significant question is the why question. Why did Jesus ascend to heaven, right? Why did he leave? Don't we need him here? Like, what is the point? It feels like his departure has left this gap, this absence. What is the gain in his going? And that's an important question for us because the ascension, what it's doing is presenting us the goal of God's plan in creating and saving, redeeming this world. The ascension of Jesus gives us a picture of our future. The bodily ascension, again, it's a bodily ascension of Jesus, is really the plot twist that helps us make sense of the entire story of God. Let me recap the story of God. Before there was anything, before anything was spoken into being, before galaxies and supernovas were flung into space, before the earth was carved out in all its goodness and glory, before human life was formed with such grace and goodness, before there was anything, there was God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in such perfect intimate community and endless love, but that life God knew had to be shared. And so out of God's lavish generosity, God determined that that life of the Trinity was meant to be shared with others. And so the Father and the Son and the Spirit chose to create humans and share with them their living community and life. And that life, that goodness that God has known from eternity we, we get taste of that, right? In the beauty of a sunrise, in the goodness of a morning coffee, in the gladness of a meal with friends, in work that makes a difference. All those are just little tastes of, of that perfect, beautiful life that God has known from eternity, that God now has set out to share with us in creation. But creation was just the first step, just the first step. From the beginning, God planned God predestined, the Bible says, to welcome us so fully into his life that we would be his children, that we would be in the same relationship as Jesus is to the Father. And to accomplish this, Jesus, the Son of God, stepped into time and space, stepped out of eternity and stepped into history, centered in God's plan and purpose conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, died, buried, rose again. And now the culmination of Jesus' ministry, the culmination of God's plan, he ascends to heaven. This is the very purpose of God's entire plan in creating the world and in saving the world. But how? How does, how does the departure of, of Jesus, how is it the, the, the key that makes sense of everything? Think of this. The ascension of Jesus into heaven, a human being, 
Jesus bodily ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, means that now and forever a human being, a child of Adam, is face to face with the Father. Now and forever, Jesus Christ, the one who has shared our flesh, who knows what human life is all about, someone with flesh and blood, a heart still beating within him, one from among us, a human being, now lives as part of the Trinity, sharing in complete community with God the Father, sharing all things with the Father and the Spirit. Come on, this is the exact opposite of Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, right? This is a full embrace into the life of God. This is the exact opposite of us running and hiding from God. And this is what God has always set out to do. This is the end. This is the purpose of creation itself. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, where he talks about this in astonishing words, he says, he, Jesus, God, chose us in Jesus Christ before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, God knew this. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ. That's astonishing. The writer of Hebrews says it in a different way. He says, because Jesus is now in heaven, we have this hope. It is like an anchor to the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's saying Jesus has entered heaven as as our leader, as a forerunner of sorts. Let me give you an example of what that's like. In Canada, we we are really fortunate to welcome immigrants from all sorts of country, people who come to Canada. And I am so grateful for the international nature of our church. And, And many of you and many immigrants, they would come to Canada and they would prepare the way for the rest of their family, right? So they would move, they would get a job, they would work hard, they would establish resident status here, they would establish a home, and then they'd send notice back saying, you should all come. Time has come. You can come. And those immigrants were were trailblazers, forerunners to this new country. This is exactly what Jesus' ascension is all about. He is our forerunner, right? Didn't he say, I have gone to prepare a home for you, and I will come back and take you to be with me, to be part of this beautiful communion that the God has always meant to share with you. He ascended, that's good news, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Here is his present ministry. Right now, as we speak, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He's seated. It's an image of reigning. Jesus has been enthroned as king of all things. His ascension, his being seated, are describing this this sovereign presence of Jesus. And from that throne of power and authority, Jesus pours out blessings to us. The gift of the Spirit, it's directly connected with Jesus' ascension. And so from heaven, Jesus pours out every blessing from heaven. Signs again, foretaste of the life that we're meant to know and enjoy. Again, the book of Hebrews says it this way. It says, God testified to to his reign, the reign of Jesus, his ascension by signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Spirit. Come on, all those things, those powerful acts of God, even signs and wonders are being poured out from heaven among us, from the hand of God. God supplies his church with what we need to flourish, to grow. 
Just think of that beautiful image, Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. Can't you just see Jesus sort of leaning over, saying, Dad, Knox Church, you know what they need? Here's what they need. And he pours out his blessing. That's the beautiful image of this. That's what Paul says in Romans. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is now interceding for us. Jesus is speaking to the Father on our behalf, pleading our cause, saying, Father, all the benefits I got through my death, pour it out. This is what Jesus is doing right now as we speak. So I can't encourage you enough. Do not hesitate a moment to ask your friend, your brother, King Jesus, for what you need to live out this faith right now. Ask the Father. Ask Jesus. He will speak to the Father, and he will pour out his goodness and his blessing. He's pleading our cause right now. Let's ask Jesus to pour out every heavenly blessing on our church. What we need is a church to flourish and grow, to be a bold witness here in the city. So we see this, this past and this present ministry of Jesus in the creed, and now the creed speaks of the future ministry of Jesus. And it says, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And here a hush sort of comes over the creed as you speak it, as we recite it often. Because it's been such good news so far, right? God creating, God saving, God rising from the dead. And then all of a sudden it feels like there's a catch here. Judge. Didn't see that coming, right? We, in our day and age, we don't like judgment, do we? You hear that all the time. Don't judge me. You're not the judge of me. Most of us have this sense That judgment is bad news, something to avoid. But the creed holds out the reality that Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead is good news. It is actually part of the joy of the gospel. Judgment is part of the grace of God, the bright shining light that God shines in this world. One of the the reasons we can really joyfully confess the coming of Jesus as judge is this. Your and my judgment day has already happened. That is good news, friends. Your and my judgment day has happened. Jesus took the judgment that was coming on us. The judgment, the verdict that emerges from the cross is you are forgiven. The curse, the penalty of death that was ours, it was nailed to the cross. And the verdict, the judgment now through the cross is you are loved. You are approved. You are righteous. You are cherished by the Father. This is the good news. This is the judgment that has already happened. Now, the creed does look ahead to a future time, to a judgment day. The Bible calls it the the day of the Lord. And that's where a lot of us feel anxious about. But again, it's so important to highlight this too is good news. Jesus as judge is good. It's not like as if we have two Jesus. Jesus on the cross, oh, I really love Jesus because it's all grace, but oh, there's Jesus the judge, all angry and vindictive. Not at all. It's the same Jesus, full of grace, pouring out with goodness to us. Jesus does nothing but shine out with grace. And yet sometimes when that grace shines out, people avoid it and they turn from it. 
One of the ways that grace shines out through Jesus as judge is that every evil is one day going to be named and judged. And that's good news because you ask anyone who has been hurt, anyone who has been harmed or violated, and they will tell you, oh, I want evil to be judged more than anything. Absolutely. That harm, that wrong, that evil that was done to me, it better be judged. Or what is this life about? We have this deeply ingrained sense of fairness and justice, right? We insist on justice, on judgment being made. And yet one of the ironies of our modern world is that while we insist on justice to be done, we reject the God who is a judge. But it's good news that Jesus comes as a judge. If I have been wronged, if there is no judge, I'm going to take up the sword. You tell the people in Kurdistan right now that all the violations that have been done to them, that there's no judge at the end of time, that those crimes are just going to, eh, what happens? You tell them that, that there's no judge, they're going to take up arms and they're going to fight. Unless there is a judge, this cycle of violence continues again and again. If God does not make some final judgment on all that is evil in the world, on all the crimes and atrocities, big and small, if there is no judge, we will become judge. We'll take matters into our own hand. And human history shows us we are very vindictive judges. A trail of blood has flown from that place. And so it is good news that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. That all that is evil and unjust will be judged and done away with, purified. And it's even good news that all that is evil and bad in us will be separated and purified. Now, I know that's part of the angst we feel about Jesus coming as judge, right? That the bad in us is going to be somehow named and judged. But again, this is good news because the best thing that can happen is that God is going to separate from us all that is bad, all those things we know have only harmed and hindered our life, they'll be separated out, leaving only the glory, the beauty, the power of who you are. You know, today people, we, we use the language of our best self, right? You know, there are moments in life where it's like our best self emerges, like all of our goodnesses and the graces that somehow are resident created within us all the strengths, the very best of our character that is untangled from all our dysfunction, it comes out. And when it does, we say, oh man, that's my best self right there, right? That's beautiful. That self, and even more greater than that, that is what the judgment of Jesus brings out. And so all that's flawed, all that's sinful about who we are, all the junk of our lives that we wish we could just change, that just feels so stuck in us, imagine all that being separated out from you, leaving only what's good and what's glorious, that we become our truest self. That's, that's our good future. And then think of who the judge is here. It's Jesus. The judge of all history is Jesus who ate with sinners. It's the same Jesus who, who said to the woman who was caught in adultery, where are your condemners? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
It's the same Jesus who forgives, who loves, who shows mercy. It's the same Jesus who took our penalty, our judgment on the cross. This Jesus is our judge. And so this is the good news that we need not fear. And that is why, interestingly enough, whenever the Bible in the New Testament talks about this future, this finish line of the world, this day of judgment, the end of history, whenever it talks about the finish line, the return of Jesus, it most of the time says, encourage one another with these things. It's sort of a strange thing, right? The judgment of Jesus, the return of Christ, how's that? Encourage one another with this. First Thessalonians 4 and 5, it speaks of the end of history, the return of Jesus, and says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. The book of Hebrews, chapter 10, where it says, we hold on to this hope we have, hope of Christ and his coming. And we consider then how we might spur one another on, how we might encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching, that day of judgment approaching. So not only the past of what Christ has done is meant to shape our today, but the future, the hope of Christ's ascension, the, the, his return is meant to arc its way back into the present moment to shape our living. And one of the most practical, everyday ways we are shaped by that future, how we live as if the ascension matters, is by encouraging one another, by building one another up. Truth is, you know what, in our post-Christian world, it's, it's tough to live out our Christian faith. Let's be honest. And sometimes we're tempted to sort of cash in our faith or to keep it really quiet on the down low, right? Maybe we grow discouraged. Maybe we grow distracted by so many other things. We need each other. We are running this race of faith and we need each other to encourage each other on. I don't know if you saw any of the Toronto Marathon. It was, the streets were lying with people sort of cheering on their friends, right? Keep going. You got this. Go for it. We need that same sort of thing as we run this race of faith. And the Bible repeatedly tells us we live our faith in the context of relationships, in community, and that for all of us to become our truest self, that glorious self of which we will be when Jesus returns, we need each other to become that. We need each other to remind ourselves of the verdict that came down from the cross flowing from the cross that we are loved and forgiven, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because so often we hear the opposite, don't we? We hear voices of criticism and condemnation, whether that's inside or outside of us. We hear voices of disapproval and disparagement. We hear the whisper that says, you are not enough and you never will be. We have experienced those sort of words that have brought shame and death. I mean, so many of us feel, live with a sense of insignificance, like our life doesn't matter. You know how rampant that is across the street at the U of T? It's amazing. Mental illness is, is at crisis levels in the university, and you wonder, what gives with that? Like the University of Toronto, it's the premier institution in, in the university system in Canada. If you make it there, if you get accepted there, come on, that's, that's a notch, right? You can be proud of. Trouble is, there's so many gifted students that it's hard to stand out. And so students constantly struggle with anxiety and depression with this chronic sense, I'm not enough. I can't compete here. 
Some of us have had things said to us or done to us that has made us feel like we are not enough. And those are lies that we have internalized. And do you know the power they have over us? And so we need to hear the truth of who we are. We need to hear the verdict of judgment that has come through Jesus Christ, that we are God's beloved children, chosen from before time. We need to encourage one another, spur one another on to good deeds, which is what Hebrews calls us to. And I'm just going to give you one of the most practical ways you can do that. One of the most practical ways you can live as if the ascension matters, as if live with the end in mind, helping others live out the glory and beauty of their future in Christ. And it is this, speak words of affirmation. Simply that. And I don't mean blowing sunshine, you know, flattery or whatever that is. No, no, I mean truly to see people in light of what Christ is doing in their lives. To see them with the eyes of Christ. To see people and name for them their glory. Because this is who they truly are. This is our radiant future of what we are becoming in Christ. C.S. Lewis has this marvelous quote in one of his sermons called The Weight of Glory, and he says this, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back daily. The weight of your neighbor's glory, the glorious splendor of who they are should be on our backs every day. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be tempted to fall down and worship. Lewis is reminding us we are glorious beings of beauty and power, and what we will become doesn't even compare to who we are now. What we will become compared to what we are now, we're just like vegetables right now compared to that. And so one of the most powerful ways you can help people here live out that good future is to name all that is good and glorious in them. Because so often we don't see it in ourselves, do we? And then we, we need reminding of God's glorious good creation in us, of what he is at work already doing. And isn't that how people change? You know, people don't change because we point out all their flaws, all that's wrong with them. People are moved, they are spurred on towards that which Christ has won for us when they see the beauty and the splendor the power that God has created them for and that Christ has redeemed them for. And when they see that weight of glory about who they are, they rise up to it. This is our glorious future. This is what the ascension of Christ is, a guarantee of. And today, God calls us to hold that glory, that beauty, that power in front of others so that they might see it and know it. So they, they get a glimpse of the finish line they get a glimpse of God's plan, of his created purposes for their lives, and they begin to live up to that glory. The creed, as it speaks of this future guaranteed by Christ, holds out this beautiful vision of our future. 
of a resurrected body, living in an intimate communion with God, loved, cherished, an image bearer of God, regal, kings and queens. What you will be in the future is of something so glorious. And we need to start naming that truth about each other. Can we do that? Can we as a church earnestly, eagerly, look at one another, see the glory and name it for one another? Do you know the power of a word like that? Because you're speaking the truth of heaven into their lives. What they will be one day in the light of Christ, you are helping them to see and begin the process of movement towards that now. And when you do that, you heal people. Truly, you heal. You healing the wounds of sin. You are shining light into the shadows of condemnation. Let's do that as a church, naming the glory of God among us. But how about our city too? Wouldn't it be beautiful if Knox Church was known as that community of people that was able to name and call out the best in our friends, our colleagues, those we work with, those we are neighbors with? Could we be the namers of the glory of God in our city? I'm convinced that the best first step of evangelism today is drawing out all the true and the good and the glorious in others, affirming something of the image of God in them. I think of you and all your different workplaces. I think of Claire Bloom. Sorry to, sorry to focus in on you, Claire, who's a teacher in a school nearby who deals with kids who have hard lives. And yet, She's able to spot and name the glory and the goodness in those kids and somehow affirm it and encourage it. Can we do that in all our different workplaces? That is something of God, isn't it? Madeline Lingle says this, beautiful quote, we draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it for your neighbors, your colleagues at work, your fellow students. See the glory of God within them. Help them to see what they might become in the hands of Jesus. Risen, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, coming to judge. The future that God has planned and purposed from eternity is so good, so full of glory. So let us, friends, here at Knox, encourage one another in light of that finish line. Let us build up one another and spur one another to good deeds. Let's pray. In a moment of quiet, I want you just to recall a good word that you've received from others. Perhaps it's a word that you've received from God, a word that rung so true, that helped you know you were seen truly for who you are. Would you just receive that again right now? Would you savor it? Would you allow God to use it to spur you on to the glory of who he created you to be? And right now, would you make yourself available to God?
God, you have shown us a light so lovely in Jesus, a hope so good in the future that you have invited us into. Use us now, God, as your channel to bring heaven to others so that others might know how much you love them, how beautiful and powerful they are. May they find their truest sense of themselves in Jesus Christ. In our Lord's name we pray, amen.